So we've been talking about the disciple, what it is to be a disciple of Jesus and what it requires. Uh, this is our last Sunday of doing this, kind of ending up this series. And uh, like I said, next Sunday we'll have a special guest to share from the pulpit here as well. Now let me review a little bit, though, from last Sunday, just kind of give us a running start into today. And uh, to remind you of uh, how we talked about the heart of a disciple from John chapter 6. And we compared two different people, Peter and Judas. And when we did that, we saw that there's, they had more in common than we thought, uh, maybe, maybe than you thought. But uh, both, again, personally called to Jesus, uh, called to Christ, and both uh, answered the call and, and uh, walked with Jesus every day for three years. They're both there doing those things along with the others. And both were leaders among the men. Peter was the spokesman among the group, and then Judas was the treasurer. And so they had some leadership involved there. And when others turned away, they stayed with Jesus. Uh, it, very interesting how, how common, uh, how many things they have in common there. And, and one had the heart of a disciple, though, and the other did not. <laughs> That's where things kind of break down. It's interesting to see their similarities, but it's very essential to see their differences because one served Christ all his days while the other one committed suicide. <laughs> you got to understand, well, what is the heart of a disciple then? So uh, we go the right path on this. And three things we notice about the heart of a disciple uh, with Peter and Judas was first, a disciple holds to belief, not doubt. A disciple holds to belief, not doubt. Judas doubted Jesus' claim as Messiah, and then Peter made the declaration of who he believed Jesus is to be. And so there's a difference there, but a disciple holds to belief and not doubt. Another thing we notice about the heart of a disciple is that a disciple listens to the word and not the world. The world can come in and pretty much distract us from a lot of different things. And uh, we need to make sure that it doesn't distract us from uh, listening to the word. Judas, he was guided by the wealth and the view of the world. But uh, Peter, he was guided by Jesus' words and, and Jesus' perspective. And, and so they're, again, contrasting their bit. A disciple listens to the word, not the world. And then the uh, third and final thing we, we learned last Sunday is the disciple lives by the spirit, not the flesh. Judas, uh, again, in, in time of great crisis, turned to himself, and it didn't end well. And then Peter, in a time of great crisis, he turned to Christ and lived out all his days as a true disciple, as he, uh, he learned uh, what it meant to be a follower of, of Christ. And the only way to have the, the heart of a true disciple is to give yourself to Jesus. It's a total surrender and a total commitment. And uh, we all have different levels of that. And so I trust today, as we continue on here with the, this series and, and, and conclude it today, that we realize that that total surrender and total commitment is something that happens daily. That each day we wake up and we are ready to go and we renew that commitment. We, re, we renew that surre surrender to Jesus and uh, let him know that whatever happens today, he's in charge and uh, got some plans. But if there's something that needs to happen that he needs, to be, needs me to be at or maybe say to someone, then we need to be willing to do that. So today, as we transition from the heart of a disciple, we, looked at the, we, we will now look at the, the goal. What is the goal of a disciple? And if you haven't yet, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the first uh, six verses, basically. And in this portion of Scripture, be able to find out um, 
how to reach that goal. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting with verse 1, Paul is writing to his disciple, Timothy, and he says, You then, my son, in verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with, with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And we'll stop there at verse 6. David Glass, I don't know if you know that name or not, David Glass was the CEO of the Walmart uh, Corporation from 1988 to 2000. Back in, in 1962, he heard that a guy named Sam Walton was about to hold the grand opening for his second store in Harrison, Arkansas. Glass, who was running a successful drugstore chain in Missouri, decided to attend Sam Walton's grand opening. What he saw did not impress him. <laughs> you see, Walton had, had dumped a couple of truckloads of watermelons in the front parking lot. He also had a bunch of donkeys in the parking lot for the kids to ride. Well, the temperature on the asphalt got up to about 115 degrees that afternoon. And so the watermelons started exploding from the heat. And of course, the donkeys did what donkeys do. <laughs> and looking back on that day, David Glass recalled the parking lot was a mess. And inside, this, the new store was also a mess. I thought Sam Walton was a nice fellow, but I wrote him off. It was the worst store operation I had ever seen. And he said, well, in 25, 25 years later, David Glass was working for Sam Walton as president of, of what had become the most successful chain of retail stores in the world. And then Glass explained that there was something inside Sam Walton that made him improve every day. He was not a man who set up impossible ideals, but he was a man who always aimed for a goal. And aiming for a goal is important. It's important in every area of your life. Aim determines direction. And in basketball, you aim for the basket before you let go of the ball. Otherwise, you're not going to probably make that basket. In football, you kick the ball over the goalposts. In, uh, in golf, the way you aim your body will determine the direction of the golf ball. The, the way you aim a gun determines the direction of the bullet. <laughs> but too often, uh, we're inclined to go off half-cocked, if you will. We use the method used too often by the Apostle Peter before Pentecost, which was ready, fire, and aim. And you're not going to hit many targets that way when you use that. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to ask, what is our goal? What is our goal as a disciple of Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul answered that question in the last letter he wrote to his young disciple. In the first two verses, you look there, it says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell. He knew he would soon be ex executed, but Paul also knew he had invested the message in his disciple Timothy. So he told Timothy to
to invest the message in other reliable men who would then continue the discipling process, continue to make disciples. That is the goal. That's the goal. The goal of a disciple is to make disciples who will make other disciples, who will make more disciples, who will still make more disciples. So there's, there's that ongoing process. That is the goal of a disciple. It's similar to the story of uh, Billy Graham. I don't know if you heard his story before. But maybe you ever heard of uh, Edward Kimball at all? If you haven't, don't worry. Uh, most people have never heard of him. But Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He, he, didn't, uh, he, he didn't have a, a, a glorious position. But uh, he not only prayed for the hyper boys in his class... <laughs> but uh, also sought to win each, uh, each one of those little, little guys to the Lord personally. And he decided he would be intentional with every single one of those little boys. And one, one young man in particular didn't seem to understand what the gospel was all, was all about. So Kimball went to the, store, the shoe store where the young man was stocking the shelves, and he confronted that little boy, that young man in the stockroom, with the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That young man was Dwight L. Moody. <laughs> and in the stockroom on that Saturday, he believed the gospel and received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And in his lifetime, Moody touched two continents for God, with thousands professing Christ through his ministry. But the story doesn't end there. It actually begins there. Under, under Moody, another man's heart was touched by God. His name was Wilbur Chapman. Chapman became an evangelist who preached uh, to thousands, and one day a professional ball player had a day off and attended one of Chapman's meetings, and as a result, Billy Sunday was converted. And Sunday quit baseball and became part of Chapman's team. Then Chapman accepted a pastorate of a large church, and Billy Sunday began his own evangelistic outreaches. Another young man was converted in those, in, during those times whose name was Mordecai Ham. He was a scholarly, dignified gentleman who wasn't above renting a hearse and parading it through the streets advertising his meetings. That would be a sight to see. When Ham came to Charlotte, North Carolina, a sandy-haired, lanky young man then in high school vowed that he wouldn't go hear him preach. But Billy Frank, as he was called by his family, did eventually go. And Ham announced that he knew for a fact that a house of ill repute was located across the street from the local high school, and that, male and that male students were skipping lunch to visit the house across the street. When students decided to go to interrupt the meetings of Mordecai Ham, Billy Frank decided to go see what would happen. And that night, Billy Frank went and was intrigued by what he heard. Returning another night, he responded to the invitation and was converted. Billy Frank eventually became known as uh, Billy Graham, and the evangelist who preached to more than... More people than any other person who ever lived. Billy Graham's estimated lifetime audience, including radio and television broadcasts, topped 2.2 billion people. That means that approximately 2.2 billion people have heard the gospel from Billy Graham's mouth. And it's estimated that 2.2 million people responded to the invitations to become a Christian at his crusades. You could continue following this trail and see where Graham and all of us started with the ministry of Jesus. Think about how far-reaching Christ's message has gone. All because of a Sunday school teacher whose persistence and faithfulness was tremendously honored 
by the Lord. You just think about your journey, where you've come. Who shared it with you? Because then you got to think, who shared it with that person? And you got to think, who shared it with that? And somewhere along down the line there, you got some kind of lineage going on as far as your spiritual heritage. And, and you're, you're part of that. You've received that. Now, if you think about it, the same process with discipling is, is why you and I are here in the sanctuary today. The reason you, you, you are in church today, this morning, is because someone discipled someone who discipled someone who discipled someone who, again, eventually discipled the one who discipled you. <laughs> it continues on. And it, it needs to continue on as well. Who knows, three generations down the, down the road, what's going to be going on because of how you discipled somebody here during these days. The question is, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? The main way we disciple others is through Christian service. As, uh, this is what the, the church is all about. The life of a congregation is centered on discipleship. Whether you teach a Sunday school class or, or help with junior church downstairs or, or serve as, as an usher or attend a Bible study group or even run sound and live stream and chat along with people who are on live stream with us as well too. Maybe even visit people uh, when they're sick or if you're allowed to one of these days back in the hospital. Everything that brings you in contact with other Christians or, or with people who might become Christians is a chance to disciple others. No Christian is too old or too young to disciple others. The ones that are younger than you are watching you. <laughs> That's something to keep in mind. <laughs> Becky and I were at a wedding just yesterday, last night, and, and we looked around and, <laughs> and we saw all these younger people. And I, I told Becky, I said, we are your parents right now <laughs> when we were younger and how we now become that older generation and all these young people, it was just interesting, but they're all watching. The young are watching the older and figuring, trying to figure things out. How did you guys, how are you guys navigating this? And what does that look like for them? But whether, the, whether these, uh, these are little brothers or sisters or, or even our, our kids here in the church, the way you treat them makes a lasting impact upon them. Something to think about. And of course, those of us who are parents are discipling our children every single day, like it or not, you will have tremendous influence on your own children, uh, as well as uh, on your nieces or on your nephews or grandchildren as well. The question is not, will you have an influence? The question is, what kind of influence will you have on them? Uh, will it be for Christ? Now, if you're an older person, a seasoned citizen, as some people would like to say, your discipling days are not over. You're showing others what it means to follow Christ for a lifetime. And remember, even if your, fa your, your health fails, God has a purpose for every day of your life, no matter where you're at, what you're involved with. People can disciple others from a hospital bed or from a wheelchair in a nursing home. In fact, it is the prayers of our older people that keep this church on track. And something that happens on Thursday afternoons that I so much appreciate and so thankful for is our prayer warriors coming together and praying. I want to challenge all of you to do what Paul asked Timothy to do. Choose someone 
you can dis- that you can disciple. Choose someone that you can disciple. And, and, and not coming along to thump them on the head with your, with, with your Bible. But just come alongside them and be a friend to them. Ask God who that person is. Then take the time to be with that person. To invest yourself in that person. So that they will be able to disciple someone else. You'll have opportunity to be able to share in, in, in their lives in some way. And that's when God's word comes into play. But this, this is the goal of a disciple. Be able to disciple someone else who will be able to disciple another person as well too. But it won't be easy. Dwight L. Moody said, It is better to train ten people than to do the work of ten people, but it is harder. <laughs> it is harder. Paul gave Timothy three word pictures to illustrate what it will take to disciple others and, and to reach that goal. So I'd like to share those three things with you from this portion of Scripture, and I trust that this will help us uh, figure some things out in uh, reaching this goal of discipling. The verses 3 and 4, as we look at the verses 3 and 4 again, first thing we see here as far as being able to reach that goal is uh, needing to have a dedication of a soldier. The dedication of a soldier. That first example is found in verses 3 and 4 here. and says, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. So a soldier, a soldier lives a hard life. He knows that he is headed for danger, and on the way, he is likely to endure deprivation. A lot of different things. Soldiers endure extremes of climate. They go without sleep, food, water. And soldiers, are, soldiers who are on active duty are not allowed to get involved in civilian affairs. And that phrase, get involved in, could be translated, get tangled up in. Sometimes we can get kind of tangled up in some things that kind of give it, get us off, off focus, off track of what a, a disciple should be doing. In the Roman world, a, a soldier was not even allowed to get married while he was enlisted. <laughs> that would be tough. But, but Paul said a soldier's whole aim is to please his commanding officer. Back then, generals recruited their own, own soldiers. So your commanding officer was often the very man who recruited you. So you talk to that person, he was right there with you then in, in the battle. Back in the 1800s, the Italians had an army general named Giuseppe Garibaldi. He became a legendary hero by recruiting an incredibly dedicated army of volunteers. And listen to how Giuseppe would uh, appeal for recruits. He said, I offer neither pay, nor living quarters, nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, Forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country with his heart and not with his lips only follow me. (laughs) Not much of a recruiting slogan (laughs) campaign there. But Jesus Christ also, though, gives a similar appeal to any who will follow him. Let him who loves his God with his heart and not with his lips only follow me. As soldiers who follow Christ, we might be fighting a spiritual battle or we might be enduring hard times or even enjoying some good times, leisure time. No matter what, we aim to please our commanding officer. We stay away from anything that would displease Jesus Christ. And like soldiers, we are completely dedicated to the one who enlisted us. Someday, back when, he enlisted you, and you've been following. 
and you continue to fall. And we need to be dedicated, completely dedicated to the one who enlisted us. So a dedication of a soldier is one way to to meet that goal of a disciple. It helps us reach that goal. A second thing we see here in verse 5 is that we need the discipline of an athlete. Discipline of an athlete. This next example here is found in verse 5. It says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So in ancient uh, Olympic Games, athletes trained for at least two years before the Games. An athlete without discipline would never make it. And according to an article in a magazine called Scientific American, Olympic competitors endure about a thousand hours of intense training in order to achieve an improvement of one single percentage point in the competition. But it is often a single percentage point that wins the gold. If you remember back in 1992, American sprinter Gail uh, Devers and, and her very long fingernails, <laughs> you probably remember that. Uh, you can look her up, pretty amazing. But she won the 100-meter dash by only six one-hundredths of a second. And it's an amazing story because she suffers from Graves' disease. And just one year before she won the Olympic gold, Gail came within two days of having both feet amputated. And after surviving that scare, she began to train and push herself toward her goal. Uh, Her self-discipline and persistence won the day. Any successful athlete has to have discipline. The discipline to train and the discipline to follow the rules. You can't win if you don't train. And it does no good to win the race and then be disqualified because you broke the rules. Reminded of uh, an event in the 90s in an NCAA Division II National Championship cross-country race in California, a bizarre twist of events took place. A runner by the name of Mike Del Cavo and 127 of the best runners in the country were battling for glory over the 10,000-meter course. About three miles into the race, Del Cavo was uh, somewhere in the middle of the pack when he realized that the runners had made a wrong turn. He began waving for fellow runners to follow him, but only four other runners came with him. <laughs> and afterwards, an interviewer asked Del Cavo how the other runners responded when he stopped following the crowd. Del Cavo responded, they thought it was funny when I went the right way. <laughs> they didn't want to do that. And as a disciple, you have a race marked out for you by Christ. He's got that race marked out for you. and The crowd is most certainly not headed in that direction. You better believe they're not headed in that direction. In fact, you may have to ignore the laughter of the crowd as you head in the other direction. But you can rejoice over the ones who have the courage to follow you, those you are discipling. Here's how Paul said it at the end of his last letter to Timothy in verses 7 and 8. In chapter, 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 4, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. So according to Paul, a disciple must have the dedication of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and then finally, the diligence of a farmer. Diligence of a farmer. Verses 6 and 7. So the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. 
During my 13 years as youth pastor back at Labish Center Evangelical Church, I had plenty of opportunities to help the onion farmers back then. And uh, they were in the community there, and some attended the church, and there were times where they asked for help. You either were helping picking up uh, the stray onions in the field, or you were on, uh, on the flatbed truck trying to make sure all the onions got into the big old boxes, or you could also be driving the truck, making sure the truck stayed under the boom as the tractor went along and all the onions came in. A lot of ways to help. I heard from those farmers how some years would be a financial washout for them, for the farm. Uh, onions have to dry properly in the barns or they rot. And if you have some rot going on, it could take out a whole barn full of onions just because it's all connected and moisture and everything. Sometimes, though, their onions uh, weren't bought by the companies. They didn't want them. Uh, the value of the onions dropped out, and so they couldn't sell them. A lot of them had to just dump them back out and plow them under. The farmers have to plan for regular catastrophes. I remember when uh, uh, times down in Labish Center, that whole area down there could flood real easily. And there was one year, I remember, rains like this that went on for a while. The, the waters came in and came across 99, 99E, and flooded over that as well. And that's where a lot of the onion farmers had their, their crops. And so a lot of that can, can be a, a catastrophe for them right there. But since farmers only get one paycheck per year, you know, the harvest time, crop failure meant no paycheck for at least two years. And those onion farmers faced many such disasters. It takes patience. It takes persistence and plain old hard work to be a successful farmer. Farming is, is, is no hobby <laughs> for a person to dabble in. Farming is a commitment that requires all a man has and then some. And in the same way, a disciple who wishes to disciple others needs diligence like that of a farmer. The harvest won't come in a day or even a month, and a disciple doesn't mature overnight either. Most discipling plans usually call for at least a year's involvement, one-on-one, -on -one, being with that disciple. But the harvest will come. The harvest comes because those you disciple will disciple others. Then the two of you will disciple others, who will disciple others, and so on and so on. Imagine the impact on the church if every disciple-maker in the church grew a new disciple-maker each year. Can you believe how strong and just sturdy spiritually a church could be? Let alone the growth of the church, I suppose, too. But Paul ended this section of, of the letter with these words in verse 8. He said, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. And this is what, Paul, what gave Paul the, the strength to keep discipling Timothy, even from a prison cell. Paul would not give up. Even though he was facing death, he knew that Jesus overcame death in the end. That's what will give you and me the strength to keep on keeping on with the dedication of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the dil diligence of a farmer. When you get tired, remember Jesus. When you, when you get discouraged, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus who discipled 12 men who in time discipled the world. Keep at it. Don't give up. 
and keep focused on the one who recruited you in the first place. <laughs> when you do that, discipling others then becomes a, uh, a journey that you look forward to and how God's going to use you. I'm going to have Becky and Don come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs. And what I want to leave, you, uh, leave with you here today is basically the thought or the question, I guess, is who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? Now, it, it, you may already have a relationship where you might be able to um, come alongside that person already and be able to influence them for Christ. Begin doing that. Find someone. And then encourage that person within time to find someone else to disciple, passing it on. It's growing in Christ, learning what it means to be a, a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus. And when you do that, then you increase the um, viability of, of, uh, of the faith continuing on, the spiritual heritage moving on. I've mentioned this before with uh, our family. Uh, I did not get that as a child. And I did not get that spiritual heritage passed on. It was out there. Right? My grandparents back east in Ohio but it never really got passed on until a good friend of mine, Greg Costello, shared with me. But the idea for us then is once it was shared with me, then I wanted to be able to disciple others. And we so just happened to have five little ones that we were able to disciple in our own family and be able to have them follow Christ and then for them to disciple others. Now, they've had other connections with friends and, and school members and stuff like that, but they now have their own kids. Some of them have their own kids. And now they're learning to disciple that little one. And so for us, I guess the prayer that we've had uh, when we got married and uh, we looked to God for direction, our prayer was that let the spiritual heritage begin here with our family and move on out. So I'm, I'm excited to see how, what God is going to do in the lives of our grandchildren, in the lives of their grandchildren, I won't be able to see it from here, <laughs> but I'll be that cloud of witnesses cheering them on. And some of you are in that, that, that area. You're, 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 you're cheering them on, and you're trying to move them forward. Um, it could be your family, a member of your family that you might need a disciple. Come alongside and help them in some way. See the truths of Jesus, because it's going to continue on down the line far far long after we've been gone. But what, what is, where is that spiritual heritage going for your life? And who are you discipling today? Question you need to ask yourself, and as you do so, listen to the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's someone that, that God has for you, and, and, and pay attention. 